So it's always interesting when we come back together because I have to remember that it has been 28 days since I spoke to you last, um, having been on a family trip to New York and Chicago for grandson's birthdays. And then last week we had the combined service, so we have not convened. Does everybody have a handout? Because this will be referred to the entire time. Okay. So it's kind of important. Yes. There we go. Okay. Everybody got one? Everybody has one. Good. And there will probably be others that uh, trickle in as we typically have it. <clears throat> so last time we were together, we did a bit of an introduction to uh, the book of Colossians and the city of Colossae, <clears throat> where it's located. Uh, the fact that it's a very small community by comparison to everything around it. And in fact, it's a town that no longer exists. And so we have this preserved letter written by Paul in prison, probably in prison in Rome, to this seemingly insignificant church. And yet what's in this book as we may know already, if you've ever looked at the book of Colossians, it is one of the richest theological books of the New Testament, specifically in relation to the glory of Christ and who Christ is. Now, anytime you come to the first part of one of Paul's letters, you end up with, oh, I would say, familiar patterns. But I think to help us all, since we all have a handout so we all can read together, we're going to read the first eight verses together. Now, you'll notice I have a little line in the middle of your handout. Don't read past the line, all right? Because it it's actually jumps to chapter 4. So let's read together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. All right. There's a lot of Christian buzzwords in this passage. A lot of them. And as I wrote, I wrote my kind of my preamble, just freehand wrote this. We, because they're buzzwords, they're cliches, we can just ignore them, right? Just kind of pass on and get to the good stuff. I'll bet the last time you read Colossians, you did exactly that. You read these eight verses and went, yeah, 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 thanks, Paul. We've already heard this before. Let's move on. I don't think we should do that. 
If you'll notice, I put a list at the bottom of your handout of concepts or words that are found in verses 1 through 8. And if I were to give you 30 minutes and a pencil, could you write out a meaningful definition of every one of these? A meaningful one. Not a casual one, not a cast it off just because it's an assignment from your teacher, but something that has true meaning. Think about it this way. These concepts or words nearly encompass the whole of the Christian life and the whole of Christian theology in these eight verses. It helps us to understand how to live our life as believers and what we believe. I happen to leave one word off of this list on purpose because I wanted to surprise you with it. (laughs) Because it's not fully present in written form, it's fully present in God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is found in this passage. Do you see it? Verse 1, there's God. Verse 3, there's Jesus Christ. Verse 8, the Spirit. You probably missed that the last time you read these verses because they weren't together. But when you think about what we're looking at, We dare not skip over these verses or these concepts because each one of these concepts or each one of these words could be an entire book, an entire lesson. In fact, I own books on every single one of these. I went to my library and said, okay, well, maybe the class wouldn't want me to teach two hours on every single one of these. So, as I wrote here, Instead, let's do a 440-yard sprint, one time around the track, and touch on each one of them as long as we have the time to do so. (laughs) But what I would suggest is take this handout and the rest of this week meditate on them. Put this piece of paper somewhere where you can see it. Put it on a counter. Tape it to your bathroom mirror. Yeah, it will be all kind of runny and weird at the end of the week, but you will see it. And then to use Philippians 4, verse 8. Think on these things. So let's begin. We start with the will of God. Okay, that's easy, right? (laughs) Define the will of God. There's entire books, there's entire sermons, there's entire lifetimes of the idea of trying to seek, well, what is the will of God in my life? Well, what are you actually asking? What are you thinking about? The word will is used 64 times in the New Testament, and 49 of them is related to God's will, and only nine times to man's will. So this idea of the will of God, Paul isn't just casting it off blithely, 
just because he needs to fill in blanks on his hello, my name is Paul message. He is declaring something here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Hmm. John 15, 16. Jesus said, You did not choose me. I chose you. Ephesians 1.11, which we will look at when we get to Ephesians 20 years from now. Um, <laughs> Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So I'll ask the class, not rhetorically, I want to hear what you would define. What is the will of God? How do you define that? Hmm? I was thinking, whatever God wants to do. Whatever God wants to do, whatever. in what? Um, I would say in everything. Okay, salvation, good, good. Salvation in... In your life? In my life? Everybody's life. Everybody's life. All at once. All the time. <laughs> one, one writer came up with the phrase, he said, it is the design of God. Uh, huh, well that's an interesting thing. I mean, if you think about architecture, anybody here in the room an architect or play with it at least? I mean, I took a class on architectural design when I was in junior high and I, for a fleeting moment of my life, I thought, oh, I want to do that for the rest of my life. I realized I was not very good at it. Uh, <laughs> but that idea of laying out the map and then following that design turns into a structure or a building. And it always has to have that because if you kind of go, uh, let's see, we'll put it there and hope it stands up. It's probably not gonna work real well. I've told the story before, but not all of you have been here for all this time. But when I was in construction in college, the, uh, I, I worked in the, um, well, let's just call it the framing department and the sawmill. But I also worked with the framers. And at one point, they needed me to run the, uh, the forklift. And the guy calls me up and says, calls me over and says, you need to get in the forklift, bring it over. I mean, we're talking a four-ton for a forklift, where the forks would go up. 20 feet in the air. So this is not a small little, you know, thing. And he goes, we need to push the building so that it's straight. <laughs> like, what? He says, so stand right here, and we're looking at a two-story apartment building. It's on Buckeye Road. I will never live there. <laughs> but you stand there, and it's, it's like this. And I'm going, how? He goes, well, we didn't secure it as we were building it, so we need to secure it now. You need to pull the forklift tongs up to the second floor and push. So I did. I'm pushing the thing so it's level. There's a guy up on the top with a level. <laughs> Hold! And then it was like ants crawling all over the building. <laughs> <laughs> securing the thing because they forgot 
to secure it. That's not following the design. God's design is always perfect. We think about his perfect will, his good will. All right, that's one side of it. But here's another thing to notice. Who chose Paul? Paul didn't. Paul didn't stand up and go, hi, yeah, I'm self-declaring myself an apostle. (coughs) And you just need to listen to me because I know who I am and I know what I know and you just need to listen to me. He said, no, Paul, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ chosen by God. The will of God. He chose You did not choose me, said Jesus, but I chose you, and he chose you too. By his will, his design, for his purpose. And because he chose you for whatever purpose it is in your life, you are secure, and you know that you have a reason and a purpose for who you are and what you do, in all that you do. And you can stand tall in the face of any oppression, suffering, or life difficulty because you have been chosen, just like Paul, by the will of God. And you might say, oh, God will never choose me. He already has. And you went, well, I don't know what it's for. I said, then you seek his face. And the truth and that path will be shown to you. Isn't it interesting? We kept passed right by that verse. It's cliched. Oh, yeah, 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 Paul, yeah, will of God. No, 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 wait. He's speaking to each one of us 2,000 years later and saying, God chose you too. And so, isn't Timothy our brother to the saints? All right, the word saints. Hmm. So, anybody have any idea what a saint is? You know, one of those monks with the weird haircut who are venerated by the Catholic Church? Is that what a saint is? Is that what Paul's talking about? Yes or no? No. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up the room, Jim. So if that's not what it is, then what in the world is Paul talking about? To the saints. In Greek, it is the Greek word hagios. Hagios is also translated in other passages as holy. And what is holiness? Holiness is to be set apart. So he's talking about those who are set apart. Not just the famous ones, not the ones who did something magnificent that is now recognized by the, the church and they you know, made a statue of you and stuck you out in the parking lot for people to admire. 
It is to be set apart. The temple was hagios. The temple was holy. It was set apart. It was different than all the other buildings. It had a different purpose. It was set apart for the sanctification of the people. He's calling, he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers, brothers and sisters, Adelphi. So it can mean brothers or sisters in that, in that language there. To the saints and, and, and faithful brothers. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 reads this. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now the phrase in the ESV, set apart as holy, is not hagias. It's a similar word called hagias menon, which means sanctified. So we have holiness set apart, and that's what we are. We're called of God, set apart differently. We're called to be different. We are not called to be like the world. We are called to be set apart, to show ourselves as faithful and holy. Little side note, trivia note. Notice that it's plural. Every single time in the New Testament that the word saints appears, it's plural. It's never singular except once. In Philippians 4.21, it reads, to every saint. It's like... That's plural. <laughs> it means all of them. He's not pointing out to an individual in the room. It's not that I would be pointing to you and say, you're a saint. And I would go, well, yes, you are, but so is she. And so is he. And so is she. We're all saints, plural. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We are in a community together serving the purposes of God to move forward in His kingdom for His glory. You might go, well, what does that mean? We can figure that out, but we need to keep going, otherwise we'll be here all day. Next one. In Christ, in Colossae. And you'll go, but wait a minute, it doesn't read that way in the, on the, in the text. It says, in Christ at Colossae. No, it doesn't. The English has changed the word in to the word at. Literally, in the Greek, it's E-N or I-N. Both times. It's in Christ, in Colossae. Almost all the English translations change the second word to at or of merely to distinguish it, I guess, theologically from being in Christ, because that's a theological phrase, <clears throat> and being in Colossae is not necessarily a theological phrase. That's my best guess, because there's no other reason to make that translation change 
doesn't really change how we would read it. And yet, <clears throat> I had to stop when I read that, because this wasn't in one of my original lists. I came back to it and went, wait. Huh. This is kind of fun, if you think about it. We, according to the will of God, are chosen right, to be holy. <coughs> and as such, we are all in Christ in Phoenix. Wherever you live, whether you move tomorrow and go to some other city or some other state or some other country, you are still in Christ, but you are planted in a different location on this earth. The unity of the Christian faith, the unity of the body of Christ, is all because of being in Christ together, and it's global. Wherever they are. <clears throat> it was interesting as uh, Pastor Jim was praying this morning and talking about <coughs> our sister church in Kiev. And he named it. And I thought, huh. They had their morning service about 14 hours ago. And they probably sang similar songs and read similar verses and we're praising the same God and we are unified in Christ, but we are in different locations. As such, you also can kind of look at this as saying you are in the world, but not of it. That's another verse from another part of, the, of scriptures. But we are called to be in Christ where we are planted. God put you in this city, in this town, in the job that you're in or the situation that you live in and the people that you are surrounding for a reason. It's part of the grand design, the will of God. I mean, I, I, I get it. There are times where, you know, you have to wonder, am I where I'm supposed to be? You know, should I be somewhere else? That's always an interesting question, but guess what? You're not going to be a different person if you go somewhere else. You will still be in Christ wherever you are planted. And you can make a difference in that community too. You might not work like where you're planted, you could still be a witness as in Christ in those places. And he says it right here to the saints. He says, you are chosen by the will of God, set apart in Christ wherever you live. And that's just one and a half verses. I mean, we could go home right now and call this good. Because the message is so incredibly clear. But then he throws in a little word called grace. Yeah. Such an easy one. It's actually in here twice. It's in verse 2 and in verse 6. Many, many years ago, um, 
we were at another church and I was teaching a class, I think it was on Ephesians. I can't remember now what I was teaching. But we had like tables like this around and we had um, table leaders so that they could, each table was kind of like a small group. And as teachers we would throw out a question and then step away and then the, t the, the class, the tables would discuss it and then come back. And we, would, we would discuss what the discussions was about. Um, and I was teaching on grace and I asked the question of the group. Write out on a piece of paper, what does grace mean to you? And then I stepped away and I just gave them time to talk. I'm walking around the room and I am stunned that half the room didn't have an answer. They could not define, they might be able to define grace kind of, but not what it meant for them. I'm not condemning them, I'm just going, wow, I'm glad I was able to ask the question because that's the point of coming to a class. So you can learn something or hear something or think, huh, I don't have an answer to that. So I'm not gonna put you all on the spot. <laughs> and wouldn't that be great? Um, now that I've given you that preamble. Uh, <laughs> but think about that question in, in your head right now. Think, well, what does grace mean to you? Hmm, theologically. I mean, it's not just the prayer you give before you eat your hamburger, saying grace. Uh, I think there's a little more to it than that. And if you think about the totality of Scripture, grace is such an incredibly important concept in understanding our salvation, what it expresses. I wrote down a few things. It's the power of God's Spirit to convert your soul. It is that unbelievable love of God that wiped away your sins. Luther wrote, Grace is the favor by which God accepts us, forgiving sins and justifying freely through Christ. Think about that for a second. It's just, I'll read it again a little more slowly. Luther wrote, Grace is the favor by which God accepts us forgiving sins and justifying freely through Christ. Unmerited favor, if you, if you will. What surprised me is I went into the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and I went through all these reformed catechisms and whatever, went to the Baptist Faith and Message. Um, you know what? None of them define grace. Not one. They will define the means of grace, how grace is received. But there's no definition of the word. And I thought, what? Wait. It's assumed that everyone knows what that is. But do we really know what that is? The old adage, some of you know this one, probably were taught it if you went to Sunday school. God's riches at Christ's expense. <coughs> Grace. Very simple. 
easy way to remember God's riches at Christ's expense. He died for our sins so that we can be in Him and have the fullness of Christ. H.C.G. Mole put it this way, Grace is everything for those who don't deserve anything. Grace is everything for those who don't deserve anything, and that's us. None of us deserve it. Grace is what everyone needs, but what no one can earn, and what God alone can and freely gives. That's grace. Philippians 4.8, think on these things. Then comes peace. Oh, okay, that's easy. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Well, we are like the pageant contestant. I want world peace. Um, That's not what it's talking about. Peace in the Bible. What is the Old Testament word for peace? Shalom. Shalom. The Greek word, the New Testament word for peace is irene. E-I-R-E-N-E. E-I. So E-Irene. Irene. Almost identical in meaning. In fact, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses Irene to translate shalom consistently. It's used 90 times in the New Testament. And it's not about the absence of strife or the absence of conflict between people. Not necessarily. There may be places where it talks about, you know, have peace with your brother. But ultimately, the Greek meaning, the first part of the word, iro, E-I-R-O, means to join together what has been broken apart. So it binds what has been separated. Theologically, Jesus made peace with God for us through the blood of the cross, through his atonement, so that we can have standing and be justified before God. In Ephesians and in other places, it talks about the enmity between man and God, that he, he cannot look on something that's not holy or pure. He cannot. And we, well, we, we tend to prove this every day, that we are not holy, we are not pure, we are not clean. And only through the blood of Christ does that atonement then make us have even the ghost of a chance to be worthy in God's eyes. And that's the peace. It's not just the absence of conflict. I mean, we can look at our Middle East hullabaloo right now. It's horrible. And we, yes, we would love to have peace, but... And some people say, well, it's complicated. Not really. But we can still pray for peace. In fact, we should. But that's not the peace that's talked about here. Not talking about shalom. That's about the absence of conflict. That's about 
setting down the weapons and no longer shoot at each other. I mean, how long is that going to last? Well, probably until Tuesday. I mean, that's just the way mankind is. Alexander McLaren wrote it this way, Biblical peace comes not from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. It is judicial in that the war with God over our sin is over. It's judicial. It's declared righteous justification. It's also experiential. We experience the peace of God when our soul is at rest and we are no longer in torment because of our sin and we feel as if we can finally accept the peace of God in our life. So when the Bible talks about peace, it's not talking about world peace, like the beauty pageant queen. It's about having peace with God. And that's even more important. And if you're curious, go to Ephesians chapter 2 and read the second half of the chapter. It's all about peace and this kind of peace with God. All right. Next word. Prayer. Now I tossed that in there because we do have the word pray in verse 3. But notice how it's phrased. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So you can look at the first part of that verse and say, we always thank. Huh, we always thank. Hmm, we have a, an American holiday coming up called Thanksgiving. Huh, is that what we're talking about? Sure. Why do we only do it once a year? Shouldn't we have a spirit of thanksgiving at all times? If we understand what grace is, we're like, oh, you know, I really deserved a lot worse. And oh, thank you, Lord, for giving me the chance to have life in its fullest. But Paul is thanking God when we pray for you specifically to these people in Colossae, the unknown, the minor church in the panoply of Eastern Asia, minor. But the word prayer is the Greek word prosukomai. Yes, I know you know how all this spell it. No, you don't. <laughs> Just kind of sound it out, prosukomai. The P-R-O-S, pros, means to be toward or facing. Sukomai means to speak out, or yukomai, sorry. Yukomai means to speak, or to speak out, or to um, express a wish. And in classical Greek, uh, yukomai meant to invoke deity. So they, when they would go to their gods, they would yukomai, they would invoke the power of fertility, or they would invoke the power of a good crop. That was their prayer by adding the P-R-O-S, the facing God, means this idea of prayer is when we lift our face to him and our 
knowing where our prayer is directed, whether it's up, sideways, you know, um, how you pray is up to you. Some people pray on their face on the ground. Others pray while they're driving so the other person will get out of the way. Um, no, just kidding. Well, not really, but just kidding. <laughs> um, but this idea of entreaty, the entreaty of God to seek His face. Remember we said earlier, if you want to know the will of God, you pray for that will of God. Well, here it is. You have, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And aspects of prayer include submission, confession, petition, supplication, intercession, praise, thanksgiving. Prayer is not just one little Twitter line. It is a lifestyle which we could go on forever. Paul pr talks about prayer in much other places. But it's mentioned here, I think, in light of my theory here, or this idea of he's touching on all the aspects of how to live out your faith. And one of them is prayer. If he left it out, it'd be a big hole. In verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> again, I look at faith in Jesus Christ just as a term. Well, what is that? That's a belief in Christ. Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. Okay. So if you have faith or belief in Him, that is the essence of your relationship with Him. Very simply. And it says, we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for the saints. This idea that their faith was becoming known, it spread beyond their tiny little congregation. We don't know how big this congregation was, but based on the nature of that little town in relation to Laodicea and Hierapolis, which were, it was like the three in this triangle, they were the least of the three. And when an earthquake knocked down their town for the second time, they decided, let's just not rebuild it. It's too much trouble. Let's move to a safer spot that it doesn't have a fault line under our, under our house. And so they did. And all we're left today is this green mound that's never been excavated. You can't go to Colossae and see grand columns. You can't go there and see something uh, archaeological. You just see a big hill next to a highway. Nothing. Small church. And yet, Paul had heard about them. That's pretty amazing. I hate to ask if anybody has heard of Camelback Bible outside of our congregation. That's... Well, that isn't how America works. You know, we... We only hear about the super famous churches. I'm going to bring this up. It's our daughter, Tristina, as we have prayed for, has gone through some very difficult times of late. But there is a small church near her 
that she started attending a few months ago. And that little church was faithful. They've been there for a long time. And they've reached out and embraced her and brought her into their community. It's not a mega church, not a famous one. It's a Colossae. Can we be a Colossae to those who come hurting, hopeless, and in pain, and reach out to them and welcome them as strangers into our midst? I sure hope so. And that fame is not one that's going to get us on the front of Christian Post website. But you know what? There's someone bigger who notices. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. <laughs> okay, hope. Oh, that's an easy word. Define hope. Oh, guess what? We have faith, hope, and love in this passage. Huh, look at that. Yeah, Paul gets on a theme and he writes it in different ways. But here we have hope in the middle of this. What is hope? Mm. Well, for one thing, it's the opposite of despair. I'll bet there's many times that you think about or have talked to people who are so anti-God and they're just angry about it. And then life takes a negative turn, and it's a tough time for them. And they don't know how to react. Because they have no hope. They're at death's door. Well, you know, tomorrow I guess I'll just go into oblivion. Well, that was a waste of a life. Huh. That's really depressing. Hope is the desire for a future good and the anticipation of obtaining it. Hope is the desire for a future good and the hope of attaining, attaining it. And in a theological sense, that hope is the hope of heaven. And that's mentioned in this verse because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Pastor Jim talked a little bit about the inevitable this morning. The inevitability of the end. And if you live without hope, you will live only with despair. So I went on one of my little excurses in my notes and I wrote, if you listen to the media of any kind, conservative, liberal, I don't care what you're listening to, Hope is lost because there are no solutions and everyone has an opinion that is a counter opinion to the opinion that's being opinionated. And ironically, and sometimes I write something going, huh, that's really interesting. Ironically, it feels like man lives by dread alone. Without hope, we are alone. And we're only left with dread. That it's just going to get worse. And I'm next. 
how can you live like that? How can you let the world's thoughts come into yours and have you lose hope? Shut off the noise. I mean, what was it with this? Simon Zaramakinga, they want to have a 40 days of fasting of their cell phones. <gasps> Everyone in the room went <gasps> when they heard that part. <laughs> Food? Fine, I can deal with that. <laughs> cell phone? Oh my gosh, that would be horrible. Mm. Maybe it would be the healthiest thing you've ever done. This hope is laid up in heaven. Colossians 1.27 reads, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'll read from Sam Storms. He has this wonderful book of devotions on Colossians. Uh, let's see, get to... The problem with the church today is not that there are too many... Oh, he's actually quoting John Piper, so... Mm -hmm. The problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. I dare you to name three. The problem is that is not that professing Christians are retreating from the world, spending half their days reading scripture and the other half singing about their pleasure in God, all the while indifferent to the needs of the world. The problem is that professing Christians are spending 10 minutes reading scripture and then half their day making money, and the other half enjoying and repairing what they spend it on. It's not heavenly mindedness that hinders love, it's worldly mindedness that hinders love, even when it's disguised by a religious routine on the weekend. Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner on earth? Where is the person who has tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of the world look like baubles and the entertainment of the world looks empty and the moral causes of the word, world are too small because they have no view for eternity. Who is that person? Okay, I'm convicted. I should be that person. And so should you. So let's come to the next big one. Truth. Also two times in the passage. In verse 5 and verse 6. <clears throat> you see the word of truth and the grace of God in truth. John 18, <clears throat> Jesus is before Pilate, and Jesus said, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what did Pilate answer? What is truth? Dare I ask you that question? Can you define it? <coughs> what is truth? Oh my goodness, this class turned into a class of philosophy. Ah, you know, I don't want to go to that class. That's too, too much work. <coughs> no, no offense there, Jeff. <laughs> I mean, what is truth? You want to give it a shot? Go ahead. Whatever God says. Whatever God says. Okay. If he speaks it, it is. Hmm? If he speaks it, it If he is. speaks it, it's truth. It is. All right. We tend to forget that he wrote it down in something called 
the word of truth. Oh, guess what? That's in the verse. The word of truth. God's word is truth. But I think there's also a bigger philosophical picture here. Truth with a capital T must be discerned, especially in a world that's attempting at every moment to redefine it. It can be known. It can be cognitively embraced. You can know it with your mind. And guess what? It is the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the capital T, excuse me, truth. The world says absolute truth doesn't exist. No one can know absolute truth. There are also those who say, well, if it does exist, we can't know it. And then there are others that say, well, truth exists, but in various ways and in different forms that are contradictory, depending on your background. Therefore, you make up your own truth with a small t. As one person put it, the truth of Jesus Christ is not a hammer to nail those who disagree. It's a key to unlock their mind from slavery to idols. It is a light to dispel the darkness of aberrant thinking. It is the power to deliver from the darkness of evil. The world has taken T, capital T, truth, and nailed it to a small t, a cross, and said, finally, we're done with it. Huh. They missed that, that particular action. They tried to kill it. Friedrich Nietzsche called the Apostle Paul so greatly troubled in mind and so worthy of pity, but who was someone who was very disagreeable to himself and to others. George Bernard Shaw, another famous atheist, there's never been a more monstrous imposition perpetrated than the imposition of the limitation of Paul's soul upon the soul of Jesus. And William James, another philosopher, dismissed Paul's vision on the Damascus Road as a discharging lesion of the occipital cortex because he was an epileptic. (laughs) Just dismiss it. Get rid of it all. But those angry people are easy to get. Oh, yeah, they're just, you know, making up stuff. Well, how about this? A Christian who lives in a dominantly secular culture faces powerful psychological pressure to conform to the views and beliefs of those around them. In the secular milieu, we do not necessarily deal with outright rejection of Christian teaching. You don't always run into that. 
large number of people have not the vaguest knowledge of what those teachings are. And their unawareness results in their lack of tolerance for the Christian ideal. The more widespread the ignorance of Christianity, the greater the prejudice against it. As Walter Pannenberg said, the idea of truth is vital for the Christian faith. And then I wrote this, we do not search for truth, we start with it. We have it already. With a capital T that has been attempted to be nailed to a small t and death has overcome, has been overcome in victory. That is truth. Came across this article in our Arizona Republic, one of the few times I agreed with something they had in there. Um, it's from a columnist named Harvey McKay. And he tells this story. He's a, he's a good storyteller, has a great column on business and things like that. Yeah. One day, a man named Truth and a man named Lie stood by a river just outside of town. They were twin brothers. Lie challenged Truth to a race, claiming he could swim across the river faster than Truth. Lie laid out the rules, stating that they both must remove all their clothes and on the count of three, dive into the freezing water, swim to the other side and back. Lie counted to three, but when Truth jumped in, Lie did not. As Truth swam across the river, Lie put on Truth's clothes and walked back to town dressed as Truth. He proudly paraded around town pretending to be Truth. Well, Truth made it back to shore, but his clothes were gone. And he was left naked, and only Lie's clothes were there to wear, so, but he refused to dress himself as the Lie. So Truth walked back into town naked. People stared and glared as naked Truth walked through town. He tried to explain what happened, and that he was in fact Truth. But because he was naked, people mocked him and shunned him and refused to believe he was really truth. The people in town chose to believe lie because he was dressed appropriately and easier to look at. From that day until this one, people have come to believe a lie rather than believe the naked truth. We are in a world where discernment is critical for us as Christians. Discernment, defined by Charles Spurgeon, is not the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. It's the ability to know the difference between right and almost right. And there has to be something upon which we can judge what is out there as truth or not and that is the scriptures the word of truth so then we run into the gospel well that's fairly straightforward the good news of Jesus Christ but I didn't write here on purpose because I want to do it in the class 
the gospel which has come to you as indeed as the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That last half of that verse, verse verse 6, is defining the gospel in its expression in people's lives. How many years ago it was now when we were in Galatians and we got to chapter 5 on the fruit of the Spirit and we start going through all the different pieces of the fruit. Not fruits, but fruit of the Spirit. They're all one fruit. They just have different expressions. And to realize Paul's language here, he's talking about it, the gospel as bearing fruit. He's echoing some of his other thoughts and his other words. And the letter to Galatia is not that far away from where Colossae is. You just head east, maybe another 50, maybe another 100 miles, and you're in Galatia. It's not that far away. It's like the difference, the distance between uh, South Phoenix and North Tucson. It's not that far away. Those ideas may have been present in this church and they knew it. And then lastly, you have in the end of verse 8, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister to Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the only time in the entire book of Colossians that the Spirit is mentioned. Isn't that fascinating? For a a letter like this, which talks so much about the glory of Christ and the divinity of Christ, he only mentions the Spirit in the very beginning as an established, understood aspect of their lives. We tend to live selfish and absorbed lives. We are most concerned with with ourselves. But the love of the Spirit reminds us that Christ's love was expressed on the cross, a selfless love. And this love only can come from the Spirit. Because if it was left up to us, I wouldn't like any of you. (laughs) Wow, you didn't... (laughs) Thank you for laughing. Oh my gosh, everyone just went, what? (laughs) Okay. I planned that joke, guys. (laughs) Wow. Anyway, would you get my point? (laughs) We don't like you either. (laughs) But you think about the disparate backgrounds and the different places of this town that we come together. We come together because of Christ. And therefore, because we are in Christ in Phoenix or Paradise Valley depending on where where we're standing in Paradise Valley we therefore love one another in the spirit of Christ that is in us I mean if it weren't for this community I might never meet any of you we might run into each other at the car wash or the grocery store or I might be the one behind you honking my horn because you're not a good driver. I mean, there's, just, there's different 
But think about what Paul is writing here. He has written to us in these eight verses the will of God. We are called of God as holy, called to be holy, in Christ, in the location we have been placed, because of the grace that He has given us and the peace that He has offered to us and our prayer for each other and the faith we all share in Christ Jesus, the hope of glory for the truth, the word of truth that is in us is the gospel which is expressed through the love and the spirit. Isn't that incredible? And typically, I ran into a lot of commentaries that go from verse 1 to verse 14. And they skip almost all of this. They're saying, yeah, 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 we've, we've dealt with this before in my other books. Or, yeah, 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 these are buzzwords. Um, my friends, we need to know the buzzwords so well not so that we can dismiss them, but so that we can love them. And we'll get back to Epaphras next week. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for this lesson, for the extraordinary words of truth that you gave to us so long ago. For today, for this moment, in this time, Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.